So, good afternoon, uh, everyone. I'm very flattered that anyone <laughs> made their way into the Senate chamber today on such an incredibly sunny and warm day um, to hear myself and uh, Louise uh, talk to you about uh, this topic of reconciliation. Um, as Michael said, we'll be putting it in within a broader framework of where we are 25 years on from the Good Friday Agreement. And certainly in my presentation, I'll also speak you know, um, to the, the legacy and reconciliation bill that's making its way through Parliament. So what I thought, if I can get the clicker to work, Michael, I don't know, perhaps it's best if I just move it down like that. Um, in terms of, yes, what we, what we mean by reconciliation, because I thought that that would be a useful place to start, because this is a term that is used quite freely in public discourse and indeed, as we said, even finds its way onto the face of legislation. But it's a term that's not always conceptually debated, and certainly within the field of transitional justice, um, in which Louise and I both work, um, there's been quite a lot of, of debate in recent years identifying uh, this, this difficulty and the fact that, you know, I think since the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission in particular, there has been quite strong support for this notion that we recognise that it's not always possible to hold all perpetrators to account and that additional mechanisms designed to advance truth and reconciliation are designed. And certainly Desmond Tutu, when opening the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, was very explicit in framing it as something that was designed to heal a wounded nation. But as I say, there has been some kind of grappling with the complexities of that in recent years and a recognition that perhaps a weak conceptualisation of the term reconciliation lies beneath it. And academic interpretations that have wrestled with that would recognise that, for example, you know, in the, in the South African context, it can perhaps raise false expectations in terms of what can be delivered and introduce a cycle of, of boom and bust. Um, there's also been some attempt to try and get underneath what we actually mean by perhaps thin variants of reconciliation that speak just to the absence of violence, to a kind of a minimalist uh, version of reconciliation, through to thicker and more substantive variants that would speak to higher levels perhaps of mutual respect within a society, cooperation, trust and forgiveness. And others have attempted perhaps to benchmark some of those variables in line with the extent to which we can recognise a reduction in stereotyping or prejudice of the other in a given society, an increase in political tolerance, in support for human rights principles and extension of the uh, legitimacy of democratic institutions. But keeping with this kind of wrangling, uh, conceptual wrangling for a moment, in thinking about how I understand reconciliation, I was taken back to a piece that was written back in 1996 by the Canadian author and former leader of the Canadian opposition, Michael Ignatieff. And he, again developing these critiques of the South African model, queried the extent to which we vest nations with consciences, collective identities and memories as if they were individuals. And he argues in that piece that truth and justice should absolutely be pursued, but he queries whether or not they necessarily uh, advance reconciliation, certainly not in that broader sense. So he says justice should be done insofar as possible, and it may certainly serve the interests of truth recovery, but we can't assume that truth recovery will necessarily heal, certainly not in that collective sense of, of a nation. So he said in that piece quite famously that the past is an argument, and the function of truth commissions, or reconciliation mechanisms, we might say, is like the function of honest historians, to purify the argument and narrow the range of permissible lies within a given society. 
But perhaps more pertinent to my remarks today, he also went on to reflect back on some of the Latin American variants of the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. As you know, South Africa was a prototype for dozens of Truth and Reconciliation Commissions that came after. And looking at Latin America, he really worried about the extent to which some of these uh, mechanisms might be used to indulge in the illusion that a regime has put the past behind them and that that could actually um, allow a kind of false reconciliation with the past, a type of reconciliation that they're expressly designed to forestall. So turning then to the Northern Ireland context, um, I think it's probably fair to say that in this jurisdiction, Reconciliation has been to some extent, you could say, used and abused, certainly in a piece by Emerson, McAvoy and McConaughey. They sought to give us a historical trajectory of reconciliation in the Northern Ireland context, and they identified that it was originally seen as a term that was synonymous with community relations. So in Britain, as we know, community relations overlapped strongly with race relations, and in particular with debates on the 1968 Race Relations Act. But here there is a sense in which it overlaps with a version of community relations that perhaps prioritises the two true tra traditions, two tribes, orange and green conceptualisation of conflict. And I think we can see that certainly going back to the mid-60s to O'Neill's attempts at advancing a version of reconciliation that was around community relations. Later on, Tony Gallagher uh, took this debate a little bit further and talked about a linked suspicion, perhaps, of grassroots efforts at community leadership and the need for the state um, to show leadership uh, on this issue. But a point that I wanted to call attention to in our context is, um, first of all, this sense in which, as I've mentioned, the way in which community relations has become a term that was used simultaneously to, to describe a quite vague and general vision to which everyone might subscribe. And as Duncan Morrow and all others have articulated, this might, this might speak to a, a variety of haphazard practices aimed at harmony, but something that, I guess, going back to something we're familiar with, constructive ambiguity, that allows everyone to remain somewhat publicly detached and knowingly cynical about the concept. But the key tension, if you like, that has emerged, I think, here is a tension between the notion of reconciliation as something that um, can be advanced by improving community relations and a notion of reconciliation that is advanced by safeguarding human rights and equality. So quoting a CAJ report going back to 2013, they identified this tension between deciding whether to focus primarily on the existence of two communities or the inequalities between them. And Chris McCrudden, my colleague in the law school, has written extensively about the extent to which a focus on equality and human rights moved from the margins to the mainstream, certainly in the lead-up to the Good Friday Belfast Agreement, and indeed is threaded through the DNA of that agreement. But I wanted, that's all by way, I suppose, of background and context. What I wanted to talk about as someone who started out their career in history and specifically with an, uh, an interest in oral history and who has migrated over the years into law and into transitional justice, I wanted to think a little bit more about um, the role of oral history in our efforts to deal with the past since the agreement. I'm not going to dwell too long on this slide. It's, it, it's something that you're all very familiar with, our failure, if you like, to actually um, comprehensively deal with the past. As many of as you will, you'll all be aware, it's not to say that victims weren't given any consideration at the time of the negotiations leading up to the agreement. Sir Kenneth Boomfield was working on his report concurrent with the negotiations, but Delivering a package of measures to deal comprehensively with the past was deemed out with the negotiations at that point, 
And so what we have seen in the years afterwards are various attempts to kind of to deliver uh, a holistic set of mechanisms. What that might look like was articulated comprehensively by reports that Healing Through Remembering the NGO developed. We also then saw, primarily in response to pressure from the European Court of Human Rights, a package of measures emerge to deal with aspects of the past, so pressure on the UK government to deliver on their human rights obligations. That, together with the disappeared commission and the work of the Office of the Police Ombudsman and so on, is often referred to a kind of a piecemeal or fragmented landscape. Now, as an aside, we could acknowledge that some of these criminal investigation mechanisms have in recent years been delivering truth for families, certainly I'm thinking of particular inquests and so forth, have been delivering truth like never before. However, recognising the limitations of that fragmented landscape, we've seen various attempts over the years through Eames Bradley, Alsa Sullivan, Stormont House Agreement and the more recent bill to pull it all together. But where does oral history fit in that landscape? I think the first thing to say is just to acknowledge that there has been fairly consistent public support, I feel, for the role that oral history, storytelling, memorialisation might play in this, uh, in this effort to deal with the past. So we saw it certainly recommended strongly in Healing Through Remembrance reports. It was um, a key strand in the Ames Bradley uh, uh, Independent Legacy Commission and Reconciliation Forum, their work. The House of Sullivan uh, report talked about a, nar a, a narratives and archive, a, a programme of work around that. The Stormont House Agreement had as one of its four pillars an oral history archive. And as I'll come back to in a moment, oral history, if anything, features more strongly in the bill now making its way through Parliament. So there has been strong support for it. But what I wanted to talk about, I suppose, is what has happened in the absence of those mechanisms that might have resourced a more comprehensive uh, programme of work in this area. And I guess what has happened is that we have seen that community groups, victims' organisations, have become incredibly adept at not just becoming legally literate and media savvy and having to advocate for their rights in the absence of agreement, or delivery rather, on, on mechanisms that might address their rights and needs. Many of them have also, perhaps not surprisingly, given that public support that I mentioned, have seen in oral history a way in which they can capture the story of, of, of their members. And just to pause for a moment and think what we mean by oral history, I suppose um, I would say that it's, it's important to recognise that it's an increasingly heterogeneous and interdisciplinary field. Um, in essence, it involves the interviewing of eyewitness participants about the events of the past for the purposes of historical reconstruction. But it's important to note that it's a broad church that might embrace self-report, personal narrative, life story, oral biography, memoir, in-depth interview, uh, tape memories and life review. In the context of, of Northern Ireland, I think it's also important maybe to just acknowledge that it's often conflated with storytelling, um, which I see as something which is more focused on the process of facilitating uh, people to tell their stories. As someone who comes from oral history and works with the Oral History Society, I know that oral history is distinct in that it focuses on a commitment to preserve those stories in an archive. That brings with it a raft of technical, ethical, legal considerations that must be adhered to and a set of standards. It's not to say that storytelling doesn't have standards, but just to draw that distinction between the two. I think I also want to just acknowledge the, the kind of breadth of work that has happened in this space. So between 2002 and 2012, the Heritage Lottery Fund awarded 81 million to more than 3,000 projects here that had an oral history element. 
And certainly under the EU's Peace 3 strand uh, for acknowledging and dealing with the past, there was a significant uh, investment in this work. And under that strand, together with uh, my colleague Sean McConville, I directed the Peace Process Layers of Meaning project. We recorded more than 100 lengthy interviews with people who household names juxtaposed with those who swept the streets after bombs, with nurses, with firemen, with mothers, with a raft of people, a bit like the programme you mentioned last night, giving them the opportunity to put on record their experience of conflict, but also their journey towards, I suppose, what we can broadly refer to here as reconciliation. So quite a lot of work has gone in, um, has been developed in this space. Some of it you might call single identity work, some of it focusing on particular institutions such as the RUC George Cross project, their oral history work. Relatives for Justice, one of our victims' representatives' organisations, has developed a major new oral history project looking at the GAA, so looking at families putting on record their story of GAA members who lost their lives. Wave Trauma have, I think, usefully looked at particular themes, so a collection of stories focusing on those who lost a partner or those who lost a child, so taking particular themes and, 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 and looking at them through this lens. And I've often said that some of the most creative work has happened at the interface of the creative arts. So some of that goes back to what I said about storytelling. So Seth have worked on a quilt, you know, where people kind of, uh, you know, use quilt making together with, and that has resonance certainly in Argentina and other places around the world. But what I find particularly interesting is that where there are legal limitations to what we can share in this setting, people have adapted oral testimonies for the stage. And that has enabled us to have quite delicate and uncomfortable conversations about taboo topics, about difficult uh, stories that have been adapted from oral history and oral testimony in a creative way. And I think some very important work has happened in that space. So I suppose just to keep with the positives, in terms of what I think bona fide oral history initiatives can contribute, I think it's extremely important that they can take us to rural and urban perspectives beyond a Belfast-centric view of the conflict. I've always said that it's one of the most powerful tools we have for getting to the much-neglected gender dimensions of our conflict, not just interviews with women, but daughters, sisters. Um, we see this uh, captured, for example, in the Extraordinary Woman Project at the Linen Hall, but both nationally and internationally we have seen multiple examples of the way in which this provides a way into the complex gender dynamics of the conflict. It also can enable us to probe intergenerational perspectives. So one of the projects that I supervised under that Peace 3 funded project involved work in schools. We deliberately interviewed retired teachers together with the principal, together with the head girl and together with someone who had left the school and actually their, their brother had been killed. But it was about capturing generational um, experiences and that can also enable us then to get to intergenerational trauma. Um, Alan McBride has spoken very powerfully in the past about getting beyond reductionist labels. So this is in a life story approach where you're no longer just castigated with quite a narrow label. And he would say that being given the opportunity to put his life story in all of its complex detail, including savoury, unsavoury aspects, lumps and bumps, warts and all, was something that was quite cathartic because it enables you to tell a story at a time and place that best suits you and to put it in its full context. So it gets away from something that we often accuse the media of, of perhaps collapsing people to reductionist and somewhat dehumanising simplistic labels. And that can obviously be very important. With this, we can also go out and capture voices, themes, perspectives that have been overlooked, ignored or silenced. And that bleeds in to a much neglected area of work around mental health, around secondary vicarious trauma and so forth. 
and together, cumulatively, in pointillism. This can help to articulate work on patterns and themes, the ways in which, as I've said, there are structural inequalities and oppression play out in the complexities of our everyday lives and our everyday interactions. So to recap, in terms of how I see this potentially contributing to something we broadly refer to as reconciliation, and packed into this you'll get a sense of perhaps how I see reconciliation, this provides individuals with an opportunity to reflect on the contextual complexities of their lives, and that's a bulwark against not just perhaps narrow uh, media focus, but also against the narrowing of a legalistic focus. It can restore dignity and agency to victims and survivors in particular. Incrementally, it can open up a space within families, within communities, within workplaces, within society for mature and measured reflection where we hear the other and see the other in, in full context. And as I say, ex depending on the extent to which those stories are shared and archived, this can ripple out to multiple different audiences, both here and indeed into the future. And so it facilitates multiple points of uh, engagement by those who are interviewed, by academics who come to look at the material, by lawyers indeed, by artists. And all of that recognises that it's hard to box this, into, this type of work into a three-year or a five-year window. This is, a, is, is, is work that takes generations, and this, this can facilitate it. So far, so good. But it would be naive to suggest that any of this happens easily or without risk. And, uh, you know, I really wanted on this slide to speak to some of the safeguards that are necessary to ensure that this work does advance reconciliation and indeed avoids harm. So together with other historians and social scientists, over the years I have uh, come together, we've knocked our heads together to think about what we would say is necessary to try and ensure that this work is effective um, and does some good. And in a report that uh, Ian McBride and others uh, I was involved in it put together in 2016, we said this work must be independent, it must be free from political interference, as indeed was articulated in the Stormont House Agreement. There must be a clear vision for the work and indeed setting out the motivation, aims and objectives, what it's set out to achieve. Appointments for those who take the work forward, I feel, should be made in line with clear and transparent criteria. Um, we need to acknowledge the work that has been done and continues to be done. So going back to the, the, the work that I highlighted, recognising the vast amount of good work that has gone before, most of which is decaying in drawers and filing cabinets because people don't trust any central archive in which to place them. So we need to, to kind of work with and through the, the material that is there. And all of that, as I've said, can facilitate opportunities to hear the other um, and indeed, with advanced training on legal, ethical and practical issues, we can you know, engage with traumatic memory and do all of this in a way that it makes a very positive contribution, I feel, towards uh, reconciliation. But I've said here that it's not a substitute, however, for other avenues to truth um, and justice. And perhaps this then takes me on to some of the difficulties that I have with um, part four of the bill that is currently uh, making its way uh, through Westminster. We'll come back to the Commons very shortly. Um, and I suppose this is, this is because of the, the, what I've just outlined about the importance of this work being, oh dear, independent. Um, sorry. Somebody didn't like what I was about to say. <laughs> I mean, I can continue. I can continue talking if you want. But... Okay. Sorry about that. That's all right. 
I mean, if you want, I could just. Uh, do, do you? Um, I mean, if you can carry on chatting if you like. <laughs> I mean, if you want to, I know everybody is being kept indoors on a sunny day, so I mean, I'm happy to just, you'll not have the slides, but if you want, I can just continue talking. So, um, and, and now I say that and I'm wondering where was I? <laughs> um, I mean, I suppose what I was about to go on to say is that on the face of it, I should be delighted that part four of this bill gives such a, a place to the work of oral history and memorialisation. And on the face of it, yes, that should be a welcome uh, development. But what I, what I would be concerned about is whether or not um, in the bill writ large there is an aversion to the type of independence and rigour that, as I've noted, is effective to kind of, to, that is essential for effective post-conflict historical inquiry. Um, and the concern there is, for example, that those developing the oral history memorialisation strategy will be government appointed, so appointed by the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Indeed, in the very, very recent amendments, there's a kind of a tweak to that to suggest that rather than uh, agreeing the memorialisation strategy in consultation with the Office of the First and Deputy First Minister, the Secretary of State will now choose which department to consult with. So if anything, I have to say that in the recent amendments, my concerns have, have increased rather than been uh, allayed. Um, and so I think there is also, um, and I, I really would need the slide to put this up to try and explain to you, my fear that um, what, what, I, what I am worried about is the sense in which by framing this work in oral history and memorialisation, as evidence of the extent to which we are advancing reconciliation through this broader programme of work. I have a slight concern, actually, that this is being instrumentalised, because if you read the Memorandum on Compliance with the European Convention on Human Rights, I, I, and again, I know Eileen talked about evidence-based. This is perhaps you know, my opinion, just my informed opinion, from looking at the broader concerns that we would have with other aspects of the bill. I, in this area, have a kind of a specific worry that perhaps this work has been used as, if you like, as some kind of um, cover for the limited immunity scheme, because I think that there is a sense in which they've identified that you, I don't think it would actually carry in any legal challenges, that, but perhaps where a reconciliation process has been built in, that you might then be able to justify the limited immunity slash uh, amnesty. So I'm concerned in just simply highlighting my fear as I look at this, linked to other concerns I have about the lack of independence, that this work and I suppose I feel so passionately about this because I, as I have articulated, feel that this, in this area we could do such important work and I worry that actually we could dent um, you know, uh, the sense of confidence of people in, in this work so that you know, people will be nervous about becoming involved in it. So yes, as I was saying there, there are concerns not just about the independence, but also about the motivation. So in that report that Ian McBride and others put together, we talked very much about being very clear about the motivation. And yes, there was a statement uh, last year which, talk, which talked about the need to halt the rewriting of history and set the events of the Troubles in their appropriate historical context. And that is why we'll set up an oral history uh, initiative. And I just worry that there's a particular agenda, if you like, that is driving that and that is, is concerning. 
So my last slide then um, is simply to just recap by suggesting that I obviously do believe that post-conflict oral history can provide a very valuable opportunity for those who have been hidden from history to bring their experiences to light. I think that it enables us to stretch and broaden the canvas for dealing with the past, acknowledging the messy and complex individual realities. And as I've said cumulatively, I think that can inform important work on the broader patterns and themes. But I do think we need to be cautious about conflating this work with bland and generalised notions of broader societal reconciliation or indeed a lazy and anodyne conceptualisation of, of, of reconciliation that is about you know, two sectarian tribes. And I think finally I would just say that the Northern Ireland case study I think further underlines the potential for historians and historical research to be potentially indirectly instrumentalised in pursuit of what Ignatieff identified um, as false reconciliation in the Latin American context. So thank you for listening and I hope that has given food for thought uh, and discussion. Thank you.